0: Section 12 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 17. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 17. Selected excerpts by Francois Diesel. 1787 to 1874 by Charles Gross. Francois Pierre Guillaume Guizot was born at Nimes, October 4th, 1787. His career was eventful. He was a prolific writer, a successful professor, a great historian, and an influential statesman. Though we are mainly concerned with his literary activity, the author cannot be isolated from the patriot the calvinist statesman the political champion of the bourgeoisie and of constitutional monarchy he is one of the few great historians who have helped to make history the polities and statecraft of the past should be less mysterious to the experienced and judicious statesman than to the secluded scholar on the other hand Guizot's training in historical research may have reacted on his political life, widening his mental horizon and helping to develop in him the liberal spirit of Catholicity and impartiality which he evinced in his public life. His father, a lawyer, was a victim of the Revolution in 1794. In 1812, Guizot was appointed professor of history at the Sorbonne. In 1814, he began his political career as Secretary General of the Interior, and in 1817, he became a Counselor of State. In 1822, his lectures at the Sorbonne were suppressed on account of his liberal ideas. In 1828, he recovered his chair at the Sorbonne, and during the next two years lectured on the history of civilization in Europe and France, under Louis-Philippe. He was Minister of Instruction and did much to improve the French system of education. From 1840 to 1848, he was at the head of the French cabinet as Minister of Foreign Affairs. With the dethronement of Louis-Philippe in 1848, his political activity came to an end. Throughout his life, he was a liberal. Though he advocated the political preponderance of the middle classes and the maintenance of a constitutional government, he firmly combated revolutionary and ultra-democratic theories. He tried to reconcile the enjoyment of liberty with the preservation of social order. He died September twelfth, 1874. Of his numerous writings, the most important are The History of Civilization in Europe, and the history of civilization in France, the history of the English Revolution, Shakespeare and his times, his memoirs, and the history of France related for my grandchildren. As a historian, he is noted for his philosophic grasp of important historical questions, his clear discernment of the broad lines of historical development, and his insight into the relations of cause and effect paying little heed to amusing and dramatic details of personal exploits he tries to determine the dominant ideas or principles of each period of history all his works are marked by a seriousness of purpose which often assumes the form of ardent patriotism or earnest religious conviction he believed that the study of the past has an ethical value that an accurate knowledge of the past helps us to comprehend the present and to provide for the future. He also believed in the progressive development of mankind through the various ages. The fundamental idea contained in the word civilization, he says, is progress or development, the carrying to higher perfection the relations between man and man. Such a philosophic treatment of history, though stimulating to thoughtful students, may easily degenerate into vague and misleading generalizations. The philosophic historian is tempted to weave his subjective ideas into the tissue which he fabricates, allowing the imagination to dominate over reason. The successful application of the philosophic method presupposes not merely a high order of mental capacity, but also an accurate knowledge of facts, which was less attainable in Guizot's time than it is at present. When he wrote his Civilization in Europe, and civilization in France, 1828-30, to 30, the modern method of historical research was still in its infancy. Rank had just begun his epic-making career. It must be admitted, however, that Guizot's books are still suggestive and instructive, despite the fact that critical investigation during the past 50 years has revolutionized our knowledge of events and institutions many of the broad lines of development that he laid down still remain unchanged. It should also be said that Guizot did much for the advancement of historical research by aiding to establish the Society for the History of France and by creating the Historical Commission, both of which have actively promoted this branch of study in France since 1835. Each of the 14 brief lectures in his History of Civilization in Europe is the delineation of a cardinal event or principle, and these principles are linked into one chain of development. At first he considers the influence of the three main sources of modern civilization, the Christian Church, the Romans, and the Germans. In the light of recent research, we may safely say that he underrates the influence of the Germanic element and overestimates that of Rome. Next, he examines four later cardinal factors in historical development, namely feudalism, the church, the communes, and royalty, and traces their interaction down through the period of monarchical centralization and of the reformation to the French Revolution. He regards France as the center of focus of European civilization. He admits that at various epochs, Italy has outstripped France in the arts, and that england has had the lead in developing political institutions but even those leading ideas or institutions whose birth must be referred to other countries had to be clarified in france before they were diffused throughout europe therefore france is eminently qualified to march at the head of european civilization though france does not hold this leadership at present what Guizot says is certainly applicable in large measure to the past. For centuries, the influence of French civilization, radiated in all directions in no other country, forms a better nucleus for the study of general European history. The prominence or dominance of French ideas in European history is also emphasized in Guizot's History of Civilization in France. Though this series of lectures extends only to the 14th century, it is a more elaborate work than the history of civilization in Europe. The author gives a detailed account of the leading factors which entered into the development of France and shows how, from the relations between feudalism, the communes, and royalty, national and political unity was gradually evolved. His portrayal of feudalism is particularly detailed and attractive, though his account of the origin of that institution is now antiquated. He believes the two great lessons may be learned from the study of French history. One, that the rivalry of the nobility and the commons prevented their union against despotism, and two, that Frenchmen have a tendency to follow an idea or principle to its logical conclusion, regardless of consequences. These lessons help us to understand certain great divergences in the constitutional development of France and England. Guizot's account of what he calls the English Revolution comprises three separate works, The History of Charles I, 1826-27, to The History of Oliver Cromwell, 1854, and The History of Richard Cromwell, 1856. Like the German historian Niest, he studied English history in order to determine what France could learn from the annals of her neighbor. Passionately preoccupied with the future of his country, he wished to ascertain just how a great people succeeded in securing and conceiving a free government. In dealing with the history of England during the 17th century, Guizot exhibits an admirable spirit of impartiality. And a firm grasp of the dominant political ideas of the whole period. He also presents much new documentary evidence derived from the French archives. These volumes are still instructive, though Gardner and other recent writers have overthrown some of Guizot's conclusions. In the Memoirs of My Own Time, 1858 to 67, Guizot comments upon contemporary political events many of which he had helped to shape. This work is particularly important for the study of Louis-Philippe's reign, and especially for the period of Guizot's ministry from 1840 to 48. In his Extreme Old Age, he wrote The History of France, related for my grandchildren, 1870 to 75. In this work, the octogenarian tries to impress upon the rising generation of Frenchmen, the need of a lofty spirit of patriotism, and a strong faith in their vanquished country, a faith which the past history of France should nourish and strengthen. He tries to awaken the interest of his readers by dwelling upon great persons and great events, and he succeeds in giving an admirable account of the general history of France. Many of Guizot's books have been translated into English, but most of the translations are marred by serious defects his style which has been assailed by some critics and admired by others shows an improvement in his later works though he was not a great historical artist his style is usually clear all his writings are marked by a calvinistic soberness of tone which though it may repel those in quest of picturesque historical details attracts and stimulates thoughtful students. Civilization. From the general history of civilization in Europe. The situation in which we are placed as Frenchmen affords us a great advantage for entering upon the study of European civilization. For without intending to flatter the country to which I am bound by so many ties, I cannot but regard France as the center, as the focus of the civilization of Europe. It would be going too far to say that she has always been, upon every occasion, in advance of other nations. Italy, at various epochs, has outstripped her in the arts. England, as regards political institutions, is by far before her, and perhaps at certain moments we may find other nations of Europe superior to her in various particulars. But it must still be allowed that whenever France is set forward in the career of civilization— She has sprung forth with new vigor, and has come up with or passed by all her rivals. Not only is this the case, but those ideas, those institutions which promote civilization, but whose birth must be referred to other countries, have, before they could become general or produce fruit, before they could be transplanted to other lands or benefit the common stock of European civilization, been obliged to undergo in france a new preparation it is from france as from a secondary country more rich and fertile that they have started forth to make the conquest of europe there is not a single great idea not a single great principle of civilization which in order to become universally spread has not first passed through france there is indeed in the genius of the french something of a sociableness of a sympathy Something which spreads itself with more facility and energy than in the genius of any other people. It may be in the language or the particular turn of mind of the French nation. It may be in their manners or that their ideas, being more popular, present themselves more clearly to the masses, penetrate among themselves with greater ease. But in a word, clearness, sociability, sympathy, are the particular characteristics of France, of its civilization, and these qualities render it eminently qualified to march at the head of European civilization. In studying, then, the history of this great fact, it is neither an arbitrary choice nor a convention that leads us to make France the central point from which we shall study it, but it is because we feel that in doing so, we are in the manner place ourselves in the very heart of civilization itself, in the heart of the very fact which we desire to investigate. Civilization is just one of this kind of facts. It is so general in its nature that it can scarcely be seized, so complicated it can scarcely be unraveled, so hidden as to be scarcely discernible. The difficulty of describing it, of recounting its history is apparent and acknowledged, but its existence, its worthiness to be described and to be recounted, are not less certain and manifest. Then, respecting civilization, what a number of problems remain to be solved? It may be asked, it is even now disputed, whether civilization be a good or an evil. One party decries it as teeming with mischief to man, while another lauds it as the means by which he will attain his highest dignity and excellence again it is asked whether this fact is universal whether there is a general civilization of the whole human race a course for humanity to run a destiny for it to accomplish whether nations have not transmitted from age to age something to their successes which is never lost but which grows and continues as a common stock, and will thus be carried on to the end of all things. For my part, I feel assured that human nature has such a destiny, that a general civilization pervades the human race, that at every epoch it augments, and that consequently there is a universal history of civilization yet to be written. Nor have I any hesitation in asserting that this history is the most noble, the most interesting of any, and that it comprehends every other. Is it not indeed clear that civilization is the great fact in which all others merge, in which they all end, in which they are all condensed, in which all others find their importance? Take all the facts of which the history of a nation is composed, all the facts which are accustomed to consider as the elements of its existence. Take its institutions its commerce, its industry, its wars, the various details of its government, and if you would form some idea of them as a whole, if you would see their various bearings on each other, if you would appreciate their value, if you would pass a judgment upon them, what is it you desire to know? Why, what they have done to forward the progress of civilization, what part they have acted in this great drama, what influence they have exercised in aiding its advance. It is not only by this that we form a general opinion of these facts, but it is by this standard that we try them, that we estimate their true value. These are, as it were, the rivers, of which we ask how much water they have carried to the ocean. Civilization is, as it were, the grand emporium of a people, in which all its wealth, all the elements of its life, all the powers of its existence, are stored up. It is so true that we judge of minor facts accordingly as they affect this greater one, that even some, which are naturally detested and hated, which prove a heavy calamity to the nation upon which they fall, save for instant despotism, anarchy, and so forth, even these are partly forgiven. The evil nature is partly overlooked if they have aided in any considerable degree the march of civilization. Wherever the progress of this principle is visible, together with the facts which have urged it forward, we are to forget the price it has cost. We overlook the dearness of the purchase. Again, there are certain facts which, properly speaking, cannot be called social. Individual facts which rather concern the human intellect than public life such are religious doctrines philosophical opinions literature the sciences and arts all these seem to offer themselves to individual man for his improvement instruction or amusement and to be directed rather to his intellectual amelioration and pleasure than to his social condition yet still how often do these facts come before us how often are we compelled to consider them as influencing civilization in all times in all countries it has been the boast of religion that it has civilized the people upon whom it has dwelt literature the arts and sciences have put in their claim for a share of this glory and mankind has been ready to laud and honor them whenever it has felt that this praise was fairly their due in the same manner facts the most important facts of themselves and independently of their exterior consequences the most sublime in their nature have increased in importance have reached a higher degree of sublimity by their connection with civilization such is the worth of this great principle that it gives a value to all it touches not only so but there are even cases in which the facts of which we have spoken in which philosophy literature the sciences and the arts are especially judged and condemned, or applauded according to their influence upon civilization. The Example of Shakespeare From Shakespeare and His Times Voltaire was the first person in France who spoke of Shakespeare's genius, and although he spoke of him merely as a barbarian genius, the French public were of opinion that Voltaire had said too much in his favor. Indeed, they thought it nothing less than profanation, to apply the words genius and glory to dramas which they considered as crude as they were coarse. At the present day, all controversy regarding Shakespeare's genius and glory has come to an end. No one ventures any longer to dispute them, but a greater question has arisen, namely whether Shakespeare's dramatic system is not far superior to that of Voltaire. This question I do not presume to decide— i merely say that it is now open for discussion we have been led to it by the onward progress of ideas i shall endeavour to point out the causes which have brought it about but at present i insist merely upon the fact itself and deduce from it one simple consequence that literary criticism has changed its ground and can no longer remain restricted to the limits within which it was formerly confined literature does not escape from the revolutions of the human mind it is compelled to follow in its course to transport itself beneath the horizon under which it is conveyed to gain elevation and extension with the ideas which occupy its notice and to consider the questions which it discusses under the new aspects and novel circumstances in which they are placed by the new state of thought and of society When we embrace human destiny in all its aspects, and human nature in all the conditions of man upon earth, we enter into possession of an exhaustless treasure. It is the peculiar advantage of such a system that it escapes, by its extent, from the dominion of any particular genius. We may discover its principles in Shakespeare's works, but he was not fully acquainted with them, nor did he always respect them he should serve as an example, not as a model. Some men, even of superior talent, have attempted to write plays according to Shakespeare's taste, without perceiving that they were deficient in one important qualification for the task, and that was to write as he did, to write them for our age, just as Shakespeare's plays were written for the age in which he lived. This is an enterprise the difficulties of which have hitherto perhaps been maturely considered by no one we have seen how much art and effort were employed by shakespeare to surmount those which are inherent in his system they are still greater in our times and would infale themselves much more completely to the spirit of criticism which now accompanies the boldest essays of genius it is not only with spectators of more fastidious taste and of more idle and inattentive imagination, that the poet would have to do who should venture to follow in Shakespeare's footsteps. He would be called upon to give movement to personages embarrassed in much more complicated interests, preoccupied with much more various feelings, and subject to less simple habits of mind and to less decided tendencies. Neither science nor reflection, nor the scruples of conscience, nor the uncertainties of thought frequently encumber Shakespeare's heroes. Doubt is of little use among them, and the violence of their passion speedily transfers their belief to the side of their desires, or sets their actions above their belief. Hamlet alone presents the confused spectacle of a mind formed by the enlightenment of society in conflict with the position contrary to its laws, and he needs a supernatural apparition to determine him to act, and a fortuitous event to accomplish his project. If incessantly placed in an analogous position, the personages of a tragedy conceived at the present day, according to the romantic system, would offer us the same picture of indecision, Ideas now crowd and intersect each other in the mind of man. Duties multiply in his conscience and obstacles and bonds around his life. Instead of those electric brains prompt to communicate the spark which they have received, instead of those ardent and simple-minded men whose projects like Macbeth's will to hand, the world now presents to the poet minds like Hamlet's, deep in the observation of those inward conflicts which our classical system has derived from a state of society more advanced than that at the time in which Shakespeare lived. So many feelings, interests, and ideas, the necessary consequences of modern civilization, might become even in their simplest form of expression a troublesome burden, which it would be difficult to carry through the rapid evolutions and bold advances of the romantic system. We must, however, satisfy every demand. Success itself requires it. The reason must be contented at the same time that the imagination is occupied. The progress of taste, of enlightenment, of society, and of mankind, must serve not to diminish or disturb our enjoyment, but to render them worthy of ourselves and capable of supplying the new wants which we have contracted advance without rule and art in the romantic system, and you will produce melodramas, calculated to excite a passing emotion in the multitude, but in the multitude alone, and for a few days, just as by dragging along without originality in the classical system, you will satisfy only that cold literary class who are acquainted with nothing in nature, which is more important than the interests of versification, or more imposing than the three unities this is not the work of the poet who is called to power and destined for glory he acts upon a grander scale and can address the superior intellects as well as the general and simple faculties of all men it is doubtless necessary that the crowd should throng to behold those dramatic works of which you desire to make a national spectacle but do not hope to become national If you do not unite in your festivities all those classes of persons and minds, whose well-arranged hierarchy raises a nation to its loftiest dignity, genius is bound to follow human nature in all its developments. Its strength consists in finding within itself the means for constantly satisfying the whole of the public. The same task is now imposed upon government and upon poetry. Both should exist for all and suffice at once for the wants of the masses and for the requirements of the most exalted minds. Doubtless stopped and is course by these conditions, the full severity of which will only be revealed to the talent that can comply with them. Dramatic art, even in England, where under the protection of Shakespeare it would have liberty to attempt anything, scarcely ventures at the present day even to try timidly to follow him. Meanwhile, England, France, and the whole of Europe demand of the drama, pleasures, and emotions that can no longer be supplied by the inanimate representation of a world that has ceased to exist. The classical system has its origin in the life of its time. That time has passed. Its image subsists in brilliant colors in its works, but can no more be reproduced. Near the monuments of past ages, the monuments of another age are now beginning to arise. What would be their form? I cannot tell. But the ground upon which their foundations may rest is already perceptible. This ground is not the ground of Cornille and Racine, nor is it that of Shakespeare. It is our own. But Shakespeare's system, as it appears to me, may furnish the plans according to which genius ought now to work. This system alone includes all those social conditions and all those general and diverse feelings, the simultaneous conjunction and activity of which constitute for us at the present day the spectacle of human things. Witnesses during 30 years of the greatest revolutions of society, we shall no longer willingly confine the movement of our mind within the narrow space of some family event or the agitations of a purely individual passion. The nature and destiny of man have appeared to us under their most striking and their simplest aspect, in all their extent and all their variableness. We require pictures in which this spectacle is reproduced, in which man is displayed in his completeness, and excites our entire sympathy. End of section 12